my pleasure to be here with you today, a pleasure of mine and my family's. Uh, we bring you the love and fraternal greetings of your brethren in Richmond. And we are certainly glad to be here and see so many uh, faces we don't get to see that often. Uh, so it's good to be here. This morning we would like to uh, have an examination of the sacrifice of the red heifer under the law of Moses. And as we uh, read here in, in the book of Hebrews, all these things, of course, which we're talking about, in and of themselves are, are not uh, uh, the, the meaning of it isn't of itself, but rather what it represents, and of course that dealing with Christ and of his sacrifice. So we'll look at a lot of verses today dealing with Christ uh, and his sacrifice. Uh, we hope to show that the sacrifice of the red heifer and the manner in which it was used to cleanse the people speaks volumes concerning the nature of man, his need for salvation, the nature of Christ, his sacrifice, and the manner in which the Almighty is able to save man from his sinful condition while at the same time upholding his righteous judgments against the wicked. Let's turn over to Numbers chapter 19, which is where this um, the, is really the single passage in the first five books of the Bible which talks about this sacrifice. And we'll go ahead and read Numbers 19 verses 1 through 10. And the Lord spake unto Moses and unto Aaron, saying, This is the ordinance of the law which Yahweh hath commanded, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, that they bring thee a red heifer without spot, wherein is no blemish, and upon which never came yoke. And ye shall give her unto Eleazar the priest, that he may bring her forth without the camp, and one shall slay her before his face. And Eleazar the priest shall take of her blood with his finger, and sprinkle of her blood directly before the tabernacle of the congregation seven times. And one shall burn the heifer in his sight, her skin and her flesh and her blood and her dung shall he burn. And the priest shall take cedar wood and hyssop and scarlet and cast it into the midst of the burning of the heifer. Then the priest shall wash his clothes and he shall bathe his flesh in water and afterward he shall come to the camp. The priest shall be unclean until the even. He shall burn her with, and excuse me, and he that burneth her shall wash his clothes in water and bathe in his flesh in water and shall be until the even. And a man that is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and lay them up without the camp in a clean place. And it shall be kept for the congregation of the children of Israel for a water of separation. It is a purification for sin. Gathereth the ashes of the heifer shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the even. And it shall be unto the children of Israel and unto the stranger that sojourneth among them for a statute forever. And we'll continue reading some more of this chapter a little bit later. As we begin our study, we find that during this time period, the children of Israel were encamped outside of the promised land. The encampment of the Israelites was set in precise order by the design of the Almighty. At the center of the camp would be the glory of Yahweh himself, shining forth between the cherubim over the Ark of the Covenant. Next we would find the holy place, surrounding, surrounded by the tabernacle and its court, in which sacrifices of praise would ascend unto Yahweh. Surrounding the tabernacle were the children of Aaron and the children of Levi, each dedicated and sanctified in their service before Yahweh. And surrounding the Levites, would be the encampment of the tribes of Israel. They, they were instructed to be holy as Yahweh their God was holy. He had chosen them and brought them up out of bondage 
that they might be a peculiar people, a jewel of the nations. Their manner and characters were to be shaped by their obedience to the guiding laws and precepts brought down by Moses from Yahweh. They were to be a kingdom of priests and holy nation. But trouble arose as the children of Israel heard the report of the spies who went to search out the promised land. Two spies, Joshua and Caleb, proclaimed the land was ready to be taken, a land that flowed with milk and honey. Yet the other ten spies brought back an evil report. The land was filled with giants, the son of Anak. At this point, the children of Israel were required to make a choice. Would they trust in their almighty God to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians? Or would they forsake his promise, the promise of inheriting the land, fearing that they were too weak to overcome the people of Israel? Let's turn back a few chapters to Numbers 14 and see what the people said. Numbers 14, and we'll read verse 2. And all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron. And the whole congregation said unto them, Would God that we have died in the wilderness... Excuse me, would God we had died in the land of Egypt, or would God we had died in this wilderness? They had no faith in their God and disobeyed his commandment to inherit the land. The blessings which Yahweh had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were right before them, but they rejected it because they thought they needed to rely on their own arm of flesh. What was the Almighty's response to this rejection? Let's turn over a little farther in the chapter and pick up in verse 27. Numbers 14, verse 27. How long shall I bear with this evil congregation which murmur against me? I have heard the murmurings of the children of Israel, which they murmur against me. Say unto them, As truly as I live, saith Yahweh, as ye have spoken in mine ears, so will I do to you. Your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness, and all that were numbered of you, according to your whole number, from twenty years old and upward, which ye have murmured against me, doubtless ye shall not come into the land, concerning which I swear to make you dwell therein, save Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun. The judgment of Yahweh was upon his people, and it was taken from their own lips. They proclaimed, Would God that we had died in this wilderness. And so it was that this entire adult generation of the people save Joshua and Caleb, would die in the wilderness over the course of 40 years. We will remember that when Moses counted the men of war, he numbered over 600,000 men. If you add an approximate number of women and plus the Levites that were not counted, you would get an adult multitude of about one and a, about one and a half million people, all of which would die over the course of 40 years. And so death would always be in the camp. This was a great problem. The camp of God was to be holy, but now the result of sin would be constantly around them. Compounding the problem was the fact that anyone coming in contact with a dead body or even entering a tent wherein a dead body laid would become unclean. This uncleanness through association with death would at one time or another affect all the children of Israel throughout the next 40 years. It is important to note that if Yahweh had not provided a means by which the children of Israel could be cleansed, then the whole congregation would be lost. Because those persons that were not cleansed were to be cut off from Israel, so the tabernacle of Israel would so the tabernacle of the Lord could not be defiled.
It is at this point that the Lord spoke unto Moses and Aaron concerning the sacrifice of the red heifer. And one thing particular about this sacrifice is that it's only commanded to be done one time. And we'll see later that that's, of course, typical of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's not one that was performed once a year or, or once, once in a new moon or anything of that nature, once daily. It was a, a one-time sacrifice. In general, we can view the offering of the red heifer as a symbol or a parable of how Yahweh has dealt with the introduction of sin and death into, into the Garden of Eden and, of course, upon all of Adam's posterity. With the transgression, transgression of Adam, death became a part of Adam's family and without some means of redemption provided by the Almighty, all would be lost. The ordinance of the red heifer can be split into two distinct parts. The first part is the actual sacrifice of the red heifer, along with the burning it into ashes. And the second part of the ordinance is the use of the ashes for the cleansing of the people. And we hope to look at both of these today. We'll have to um, kind of move along quickly because there's a lot to be covered. Uh, in dealing with the events of this sacrifice, it is important to keep in mind that keep in mind all the people involved as well as the elements of the sacrifice. So we'll see Moses and Aaron, we'll see Eliezer, we'll see uh, another person who comes along to actually slay the sacrifice, there's one who's clean who can gather the, the ashes, and so forth. And to a quote from one of our hymns, we read, Aaron must lay his robes away, his mitre and his vest, when God's own son is sworn to be the offering and the priest. So also, Keep in mind Christ as we go through and look at this sacrifice of the heifer. The first thing we know concerning the sacrifice is that it was to be brought by the children of Israel. So they were commanded to bring forth this heifer. We know that uh, we are told that salvation is of the Jews and that our Lord took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. So we see that our Lord begins to to fulfill the sacrifice even from the beginning concerning its, its origination. Next we know that it's a heifer. The heifer is a, a female cow and Abraham was offering, offered a three-year-old heifer concerning the covenant uh, at the time that the covenant was confirmed to him in Genesis chapter 15. Let's turn over to Isaiah 1 verse 18. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 18. This is concerning the red. It was, of course, to be a red, red heifer. Come now and let us reason together, saith Yahweh. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. And so this is uh, one of the verses which uh, we often use to point out the fact that red is a designation for sin. And so this heifer, in the fact that it was reddish, had some connotation of sin to it. Now, working kind of perhaps opposite to that, we learn that this red heifer must be without blemish. And if we turn back over to Hebrews 9, Hebrews 9 verses 13 and 14, we see how our Lord filled out uh, this requirement as well. Hebrews 9 verses 13 and 14. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? 
We see then that the heifer has two characteristics which we must reconcile. How can a heifer be both red, a designation of sin, and yet without blemish? And this is, of course, one of the, our fundamental teachings concerning the nature of Christ. Christ was of that same Adamic nature, sinful nature, as the rest of Adam's race, and yet morally he presented himself to God without blemish, without the blemish of personal sins. It is important that we recognize that the law of Moses teaches us many facets of the sacrifice and nature of Christ through its offerings and sacraments. So it's important that some would discard the Old Testament, particularly maybe those things under the law as saying they were no longer applicable, where in fact what we see here is, of course, a representation of Christ, that it's, uh, it's, it gives us various details which, which we perhaps wouldn't see otherwise. The next characteristic of the red heifer is that it never came under yoke. And there's a couple, in reading through various Christadelphian writers, I've found a couple explanations for this. Um, one of which given by the story of the Bible is this. The yoke is a man-made method of subduing the wild nature of an animal and to compel obedience. Christ never needed that, for he gave himself completely to his Father's will. That's one aspect. He never had to be yoked and drawn into the right path um, to work in his father's field, so to speak. Another we might look at is over in Lamentations chapter 1, verse 14. Lamentations chapter 1, verse 14. We read here, The yoke of my transgressions is bound by his hand. They are wreathed and come up upon my neck. He hath made my strength to fail. The Lord hath delivered me into their hands, for whom, from whom I am not able to rise up. And so we see this yoke of transgression was never brought upon our Lord. He never gave in to that and was then bound by that sin. Uh, so he was able, as we spoke earlier, to go forth his life in a, in a manner that was pleasing to his Heavenly Father, despite the fact of his, his nature. And of course that nature was required uh, of him to, to in order to perform a proper sacrifice. Let's turn back to Numbers 19. You might want to keep a marker or a finger in there because we'll be turning back and forth. Numbers 19, if we look in verse 3, Numbers 19.3 says, And ye shall give her unto Eleazar the priest, that he may bring, forth, bring her forth without the camp, and one shall slay her before his face. We may ask why Eliezer was chosen to officiate in this offering. Aaron was the high priest. He was there. Moses was there. So why was Eliezer chosen? Perhaps the best suggestion on this is the fact that Eliezer was to be the high priest. He was not currently the high priest. So just as Christ was to fulfill the role of high priest in the future, so was Eliezer. So we see not only the sacrifice, but also the priest being a designation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, there's many scriptures uh, which we could read concerning Christ being a high priest. I'll read one from Hebrews. Wherefore, he is able to also to save them to the ut uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he liveth forever to make intercession for them. For such an high priest became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. So again, the fact that Eliezer went forth as the high priest designate uh, in, going, in performing this sacrifice. 
We're also told that this sacrifice was performed without the camp. Uh, let's turn over to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13, verses 11 and 12. Hebrews 13, verses 11 and 12. For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp. Wherefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. So we know from a natural standpoint, um, our Lord was not, um, a not sacrificed within a Jerusalem proper, but on a, on a larger scale we know that it was outside of the Mosaic institutions uh, by which Christ was able to accomplish what he did. He fulfilled the Mosaic law, but he, he was fulfilling the everlasting covenant and not that of, um, through the Mosaic system. The Mosaic system did not bring life, um, eternal life. We're also told in that same uh, 19, Numbers 19, verse 3, that one was to come and slay her, being the, the sacrifice, before the, priest, before the priest's face, before Eleazar. And this was indicative of that death would come at the hand of another. This is perhaps represents his own brethren who would come forth and slay him. Um, of course, the sacrifice not being slayed by the priest himself, but by another that perhaps represents that of his, his own brethren coming forth to slay him without the camp. As we move on to Numbers 19, verse 4, we read, And Eleazar the priest shall take of her blood with his finger and sprinkle of her blood directly before the tabernacle of the congregation seven times. And this seven times sprinkling was necessary in order to cleanse the tabernacle. So that was the the method in which he would, he would face the tabernacle area and, and sprinkle the blood in that direction. Let's turn over to Hebrews 9, verses 11 and 12. And you can, of course, see the, the pattern here is that the book of Hebrews uh, gives us a, a lot of detail concerning the various elements that we see under the law and how they relate to that, that greater sacrifice. Hebrews 9, verses 11 and 12 read, but Christ being come in high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal, eternal redemption. So if you look back in verse 11, we see that he was the greater and more perfect tabernacle, which all that represented, and that tabernacle had to be cleansed by blood, uh, which we actually read um, later on in Hebrews, where we read that moreover he that sprinkleth the blood, he sprinkled the blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry, and almost all things are by law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. So all this, the blood shedding was designated to represent the death which was required, and that death, of course, was fulfilled in Christ. Continuing on, we know that once this heifer was, was, um, was slain, it had to be burned. It had to be burned, her skin and her flesh and her blood with her dung, every part of her was to be burnt. And this was to be shown that it was a total consummation of flesh. There would be no flesh would endure once this sacrifice was accomplished. And this, of course, was the, the very giving of Christ's life, that there would be no flesh would, would be uh, glorified once this was accomplished. As the priest went about and 
went to burn and to create the sacrifice, he was commanded to throw in certain things along with the burning. They were cedar wood, hyssop, and scarlet. And so they were to be cast upon this burning fire as this heifer was to be burnt all the way down to ashes. So we'll take a look at those particular elements. Cedar in itself, we often hear of the, the, the cedars of Lebanon. Uh, cedars grow out into a durable, decay-resistant wood. And we also know, often you know, use it today. People have cedar closets and, and so forth. Uh, it's uh, very durable and it, it, it uh, prevents decay. The cedar is an evergreen tree. And it's one of the greatest trees uh, in the Middle East. So whenever the scriptures want to talk about something very grand, they often use the cedar as a representative. On the other side of, of the scale, you have the hyssop. The hyssop is a very small plant, and I'll read a description. We know it today, perhaps in this country, as marjoram, and that's a, um, a spice that you may find in your supermarket. The hyssop is a, is a grayish shrub with thin, woody branches. Neither its leaves nor its flowers are outstanding in any way. It makes do with very little, sometimes growing out of the smallest cracks of stone. Yet it is highly valued for its fragrance and flavor. The hyssop is an important spice and medicinal plant, while its dry branches are excellent kindling. And we know uh, from the scriptures we, we read, Purge me with hyssop, and I sh shall be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. And in fact, the, the very first hymn we sang today, hymn number one uh, reads, Do thou with hyssop sprinkle me, I shall be cleansed so. Yea, wash thou me, and then shall I be whiter than the snow. While pride is symbolized by the majestic cedars of Lebanon in Jewish tradition, the lowly hyssop represents modesty and humility. In religions, in religious paintings, hyssop is used as a sign of humility. So you kind of have several things being uh, represented here, one of which is the idea that perhaps from the least even unto the greatest have to come into the sacrifice. But you also have the idea with hyssop that there must be a humility by which the sacrifice is accomplished and that the, uh, the evergreen nature and the preservative effect of the cedar shows what the sacrifice would accomplish for, for those who are associated with it. So we have those two, uh, quite a contrast in the two. And we're also told later on uh, in First Kings how even Solomon studied, it says, from the, the cedar tree that is in Lebanon, even unto the hyssop that springeth out of the wall. The last thing that was thrown on was the scarlet. So they, that they would take uh, some sort of linen that was Im embedded or dyed with scarlet and cast it upon the fire. And we may kind of wonder here, well, why would you have to throw scarlet onto a red heifer? It's already red. Uh, we already have a representation of Christ. What is this red having to designate? And we would suggest to you that this is the sins of the people being cast upon Christ. Uh, let's take a look at several passages. The first will be in uh, Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, and we'll read verses uh, 4 and 5. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we are did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. 
So we see this, this casting forth of this red scarlet upon the heifer, indicating that, as it says later on in this, that he shall bear our iniquities. So those sins can be consumed within the sacrifice. And over in Peter, we won't turn to it, but it's, we read that Jesus, who, who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree. So again, the, his ability not only to save himself, uh, which he did and which was required, um, but also to save us as well. Once this sacrifice was completed, all that was left was ashes. And also, we might note, if we turn over to Numbers 19, you'll notice that as you go through this, that each of these, each of the priests and everyone associated with this sacrifice becomes unclean through this process. So if we look in Numbers 19, verse 7, we read, Then the priest shall wash his clothes, and he shall bathe his flesh, and afterward he shall come into the camp, and the priest shall be unclean until even. And it continues on, everyone associated with this becomes unclean. So everyone, in some manner, if we look at the broader parable dealing with the salvation of mankind, those who came of Adam were all unclean, even Christ himself, in the fact that his nature was unclean, um, that he had something which had to be cleansed as he, as he went through the process as well, although it was not, of course, personal sins. If we look in verse 9, we read, And a man that is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and lay them up without the camp in a clean place. And it shall be kept for the congregation of the children of Israel for a water of separation. It is a purification of sin. And this is one of the other things that makes this sacrifice uh, unique in that these ashes were stored up and it wasn't just something that was used for those who were present. It wasn't something that was good for the day or good for you know, a year or so, these ashes could be carried and were carried about with the children of Israel as they traveled through the wilderness. And these ashes were used for this cleansing. And the cleansing that we're of course talking about is what we started with was the fact that if anyone came in contact with death, he had to be cleansed, else he would be cut off from the, children of, from the, the, the tabernacle and the, the children of Israel. So let's go on and read about how these ashes were used. Numbers 19, we'll read verses 17 through 20. Uh, Numbers 19, verse 17. And for an unclean person, they shall take of the ashes of the burnt heifer of purification for sin, and running water shall be put thereto in a vessel. And the clean person shall take hyssop and dip it in the water and sprinkle it upon the tent and upon all the vessels, and upon the persons that were there, and upon him that toucheth a bone, or one slain, or one dead, or a grave. And a clean person shall sprinkle upon the unclean on the third day and on the seventh day. And on the seventh day he shall purify himself, and wash his clothes, and bathe himself in water, and shall be clean at even. And the man that shall be unclean and shall not purify himself, that soul shall be cut off from among the congregation, because he that defiled the because he hath defiled the sanctuary of Yahweh, the water of separation hath not been sprinkled upon him, he is unclean. So you see here the great um, judgment or condemnation upon those who didn't go through and find a, a means for cleansing. They would be cut off, they would not be allowed to 
to be near the congregation because it would defile the tabernacle or the sanctuary of the Lord. So this was a very important process which the children of Israel needed to avail themselves of. The ashes of the heifer were, were to be duly gathered up and stored in a clean place without the camp. They were stored for future use by those who required cleansing from the uncleanness to, because of their association with death. And if you, if you noticed earlier, it talks about this sacrifice was for those not only for, the, for those of Israel, but for the strangers who were sojourning with Israel. Let's take a look at, first of all, at, at ashes in dealing with this. Ashes, of course, I think we're familiar with. It's representing, of course, that of, of death and, um, and, and that of death and, and the results of the condemnation, the results of the sin. Let's turn over to Genesis 18 and read verse 27. Genesis 18, verse 27. And Abraham answered and said, Behold now, I have taken upon me to speak unto the Lord, which am but dust and ashes. So Abraham recognized that his true nature was nothing but dust and ashes. You know, dust thou art, unto dust shalt thou return. So this was the, the, the destiny for all men, or is the destiny, uh, if there's no means to, to intervene. Uh, let's turn over to Job chapter 30, verses 18 and 19. Job 30, verses 18 and 19. By the great force of my disease is my garment changed. It bindeth me about as a collar of my coat. He hath cast me into the mire, and I am become like dust and ashes. So Job here speaking of the fact that he, through his body, which had been uh, greatly corrupted through the, through the judgments or the, the, the teachings, if you will, of the Lord, the chastisement, um, he was, had the body of death upon him. So he considered himself nothing but dust and ashes. Ashes then are symbolic, of course, of death. And in specific, specific to the red heifer offering, represent to us the sacrificial death of our Lord Jesus Christ. These ashes were to be combined with water prior to their use. So they weren't just to get the ashes and sprinkle it upon the people. They had to go and, and get um, what the scriptures call as running or living waters. The King James Version uses the term running waters, but perhaps a better meaning is living waters. And the Hebrew word, uh, if I can pronounce it, is kai, means alive, fresh, and living. There is a distinction pointed out in the law of Moses between water which is taken from a stream or river versus those stored in vessels. And this contrast is shown to us in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 2, verse 13. Jeremiah 2, verse 13. We read, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So the Lord provides living waters, fountains of living waters. But on the other side, man, of course, likes to take things and contain it and build uh, cisterns or some other pots and so forth to, to store waters. Well, concerning the sacrifice, it was not good enough to have a jar full of water by which that you, know, you could dip out. You had to go out and find running waters or living waters um, in order to make this sacrifice or this, this cleansing uh, effective. 
This word kai is first used in the first chapter of Genesis where it talks about let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that hath life. So you can see that the, how the waters teemed with life back in Genesis at the creation of all things. Um, this same concept is used here in this creation of what that calls the water of separation. There had to be living waters in order to make this effective. And of course this reminds us of Christ who, who said, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again, speaking to the woman, but whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. So if we then combine in our thoughts the use of the, hef of the ashes of the heifer and those things which are living waters, we see a representation of baptism. We see the ashes representing the death of our Lord and the living waters representing eternal life in Christ. So only through the combination of both of these could there be a means by which the people could be saved from death. Let's turn over to Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 9. Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 9. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? So again, remember the water with the ashes in it. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. So this process by which those that, that were had touched or come close to a dead body, therefore associating themselves with sin, had to have this condemnation removed. And this process by which these ashes representing Christ's uh, sacrifice, along with living waters, were used to cleanse these people, that was the message which uh, hopefully they were to learn through the whole process. Now let's turn back um, and we'll look at one more point uh, before we close. And that is concerning the timing in which this cleansing had to be accomplished. Let's look at Numbers 19, uh, verse 19. Numbers 19, verse 19. And the clean person shall sprinkle upon the unclean on the third day, and on the seventh day, excuse me, on the, let me reread this. And the clean person shall sprinkle upon the unclean on the third day and on the seventh day. And on the seventh day he shall purify himself and wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and shall be clean at even. And I didn't find too much commentary on these verses, so I'll make a suggestion as to what this means. The cleansing of the red heifer was required on someone who is unclean on the third day, without which the unclean person would not be cleansed on the seventh day. So both days were required. I would suggest this is an indication to us that we must be associated with the sacrifice of Christ, the anatypical red heifer, prior to the 
seventh day, that greater seventh day, which is, of course, the, the kingdom age. So during our lifetimes, we must be associated with this uh, saving waters a representative uh, representing baptism uh, that we must be saved through that mechanism prior to the seventh day if we wish to be cleansed on the seventh day as well. Finally, on the seventh day itself, a final cleansing occurs. And we know that when we are baptized, we have a condemnation removed, that, to a, that condemnation which would condemn us to a, a, a perishing death. But now, having been cleansed, we have hope on the seventh day to finally uh, partake of a greater cleansing, which is that a cleansing to divine nature, where our mortal flesh will be removed. So to summarize then, we hope that we've made uh, the following points. First of all, we have a merciful God who is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He provides the means by which we can be saved. That Jesus of Nazareth fulfilled the symbols of this sacrifice, being of the condemned race of Adam, yet not availing himself of the lust of the flesh which he bore. That Christ bore our sins, and in the process, his sinful nature was totally consumed. Death was overcome by death, death itself. And then finally, through association with this sacrifice, we too can be cleansed of the sin and of death. We'd like to conclude with a reading from Revelation 19, speaking of those who are cleansed. Revelation 19, verses 5 to 9. Revelation 19, verse 5. And a voice came out of the throne, saying, Praise our God, all ye his servants, and ye that fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice, and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. And he, and he saith unto me, Write, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said, saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. Thank you.